Welcome to Founder Chats by Barometrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. My name is Leah, and I'm on the marketing team at Barometrics. This week, Brian talked with Reed McGinley Stemple, co-founder and CEO of Stitch. As a former employee at Plaid, Reed was inspired by their banking API and decided to build his own set of developer tools. And that's where Stitch came from. Stitch is a comprehensive array of user infrastructure solutions. It eliminates the cumbersome task of memorizing a million different passwords and is the foundation of a simplified identity ecosystem. Keep listening to hear Reed's story of building Stitch, as well as lessons he learned along the way. Enjoy. Hey, Reed, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me today. Sure. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Let's get started where we do usually get started. Where did you start your entrepreneurial journey? I guess really the start of it was the first time I started working in tech back in 2017. I I guess that's really where the seeds of it started to uh, kind of grow. I I joined a company called Plaid back in 2017. And before that, I would not consider myself especially entrepreneurial. In particular, you know, I had worked in management consulting before joining Plaid, which I sometimes feel is even, you know, a contrast to entrepreneurship. Often you're just trying to, you know, make fine, small changes to things like operating expenses, etc. You're not trying to do, you know, create net new things in the world often in terms of at least the projects I was familiar with. So I, I was much more interested in getting to something a little bit more, and in particular startups back in 2017. And that was when I found Plaid, which at the time was maybe a 90 person company out in SF, you know, a series B company. And I joined first on the go-to-market team in a generalist role, and then moved over to the product team. And on the product team, I worked on a actually an interface that probably most listeners have probably interacted with, even if they didn't realize they were using Plaid. Uh, Plaid is the financial backbone of how you connect bank accounts to fintech apps. So anytime you've connected your Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo account to Venmo, Robinhood, Coinbase, etc., you've been using Plaid in the background in order to enable that handshake. And so I worked on the team that was responsible for the authentication experience from an end user perspective of when you link that bank account. And so I worked on both security projects that were aimed at uh, preventing you know, account takeover attacks and also projects that were aimed at improving conversion so that our customers, the Robinhoods and Coinbases of the world would be happy. And I think that was really the first time I started thinking about founding a company was running into an issue that plagued us internally, but also just kind of made me scratch my head about why did we do that in the world? And that actually came down to how do we actually log in and sign up for services online? My co-founder and I had noticed that as we were working on this project at Plaid, the most common headache that we had from both a security perspective and a user experience perspective in this flow was password-based. Passwords were the biggest cause of fraud, but also the biggest cause of users abandoning the flow entirely and giving up because of the friction of not remembering their password. And so we kind of asked ourselves, why do we even still use passwords to authenticate ourselves in 2020 when you have better technologies like biometrics? You can use things like email verification, email magic links, SMS, so you can do mobile verification, et cetera. And so I think kind of having that experience where I'd worked at a tech company, had seen you know, how quickly things can evolve when you, you know, put a lot of attention and care into building a great product, and then noticing firsthand something that we thought was really incorrect about the way that the world worked in 2020 when we started this company was really, I think, probably the burgeoning kind of experience that led me to starting Stitch and going deeper down the entrepreneurial path. That's awesome. What made you want to go to go and work at Plaid? Yeah. So 
It's interesting. I think there's probably two major components. One was kind of what is what was the push factor away from working at a you know great consulting firm like Bain, uh, and then what was the pull factor to going to Plaid in particular. And I think the push factor was similar to what I had talked a little bit about earlier, where while Bain was a great training grounds in terms of analysis, logic, and structured thinking in terms of problem solving, I did not find it particularly creative or that interesting for relative to what I wanted to do. I felt, as I had mentioned, you're often kind of, you know, optimizing pretty small things, which, you know, could have a really large impact at a large organization, but to me were less interesting than working on something that was net new or trying to create growth for a burgeoning company. And so I kind of knew that, you know, consulting was not going to be a long-term career path for me. And startups felt like a pretty logical choice next if I could find the right startup, just because, you know, their inflection point in terms of where they are in their journey, but also kind of the markets they're going after. And so that was kind of the push factor for me was to kind of think about moving from consulting to startups. And then Plaid in particular was really interesting to me because I credit, you know, a lot of luck to the actual outcome of me landing there. I did not know what Plaid was at the time when I started my job search. I just got a cold outreach from the recruiter and there wasn't that much publicly known about Plaid at the time. They were a Series B company, but I think they're valued around $200 million at the time. So they're still pretty early on in their journey. And I, I just remember there, you know, from meeting the team, learning a little bit more about the product, and then asking, you know, just friends in Silicon Valley what they thought of the company. While it was still kind of like a well-kept secret, everyone had a lot of reverence for the team. And I noticed immediately after meeting them that there was something special happening there. And so that was kind of the pull factor was even though I was not that deep into the API space or fintech in particular, it just felt like too good of an opportunity to pass up once I met more of the team members at Plaid. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And I'm sure that was, or maybe I could just ask, <laughs> I, I, I imagine that, that there was like a big culture shock going from the consulting world into a company still, well, I, I guess for me, Series B is like like relatively far along compared to the, the people that I usually talk to. But it, it sounds like from your perspective, they were still like pretty early, especially comparing to where they are today. Uh, did it feel like there was a big shift for you with the type of environment you're going from, from the consulting world into the more startup type environment of, of Plaid? Definitely. I remember there were, probably, there were probably two main things that I noticed immediately after joining. The first was actually one piece that was a massive change. And the second one was something I expected to be more different, but actually was not as different as I had kind of supposed. The first piece that was really different was just the bias towards action. And the fact that, you know, in consulting, you're often turning decks. And that means, you know, you're doing a new deck every day or week in order to show it to the exec team at this Fortune 100 company. You're getting feedback from your partners and then from them, then you're adapting it and you're going back to them. And it was one of the things that frustrated me was you're often just turning decks and not actually taking action for months or years until, until after you've delivered that recommendation. And so there was maybe a bias towards doing work in consulting, but there wasn't often a bias towards action and actually you know taking the recommendation and implementing it. So that really frustrated me. But I remember it was just a complete change when I moved to Plaid of you know kind of just a just do it mentality around if you see something broken, just fix it, run the project, you know, let people know if you have an idea around something and you can just fully take ownership of that. And so that was really refreshing. I think the thing that surprised me because I probably expected it to be a little bit more disorganized is that, you know, well, it was 90 people, so it wasn't you know super small, but it was a small-ish 
startup. I remember joining and expecting there just be a world of difference in terms of the organization of a really large consultancy like Bain and Plaid when it came to things like onboarding, employee training, operations, et cetera. And so while you could you know, gain a lot of ownership by taking control of something at Plaid, I was actually really impressed by how structured everything was from kind of an onboarding, training, et cetera experience. And so that was one of the pieces that wasn't surprisingly to me that different relative to where I was coming from. That's really, really awesome and, and super, super good to hear. Do you have any examples of like a time where you saw something that was broken or you saw you saw somebody who saw something that was broken? And I guess I'm curious is like, what sort of guardrails, if any, did Plaid put up to make sure that if everybody is is in the process of like trying to make sure that things are constantly getting better, how that doesn't result in well, everything either goes sideways or like some things get worse. Is there was there any sort of like structure that's put into place to make sure that things are actually moving in the right direction? Or did they have the mentality that was more like, well, in order for us to achieve like our long-term goals, we have to be a little bit more permissive in letting people just try stuff because we know a lot of things aren't necessarily going to work. But as long as it's a little bit better, maybe that's okay. Or I'm, I'm just curious, like what was the what was the sort of like mentality there as far as like the the counterside of if everybody is going to be allowed to make changes and take ownership of stuff, how they protect it, if at all, against things potentially potentially going in the opposite direction. I think there was an interesting blend of both top-down guidance that was valuable in terms of avoiding people kind of spreading in too many unrelated directions, but also providing a lot of bottoms-up ownership to the team. And so, for example, I remember there was always really clear, you know, two to three, maybe four top line metric goals for the company on an annual basis. And often that would become a common way that, you know, a common language for how people would communicate is how does X project move this metric versus that metric. And that would be a really easy way for, you know, team members that maybe weren't in leadership positions to negotiate with each other on how important was a project to actually fix this now versus leave this broken because it's not going to hit any of the primary goals that we have. And so I think the fact that they're always pretty clear top line goals made it much easier on the IC level uh, to negotiate what you should be working on. And then I would say there, you usually would not do like a large project without at least getting buy-in from your manager or someone else that was a little bit more plugged in uh, to the executive team. So for example, one of the things I worked on was kind of overhauling how we did customer surveying and uh, getting inputs for our roadmap. And it was the type of thing where, you know, creating a really large NPS survey process, figuring out what were the features that customers wanted to build is a pretty big project in terms of, you know, a lot of customer communication. Then you also need to make sure that communicated feature requests moves to the product team, then gets implemented. So it doesn't feel like you're not listening to people. And so it's the example of a type of project where I definitely wouldn't have done it without any buy-in from the executive team. But when you have managers and executives that are supportive of that ultimate outcome and you propose something like that, it could move pretty quickly given Plaid's bias towards action. That's really cool. And it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the feeling that I have is it was sort of like the company is very clear and discreet in the high-level goals and the spirit of them saying like, well, everybody can anybody can fix anything <laughs> to a certain extent is is sort of like well, if you're trying to achieve one of these high-level goals and then there's some sort of you know, process or structural issue that's getting in the way of you hitting this goal, then you're also empowered to fix that thing, like remove that blocker 
so that you can actually successfully hit the goal. So it's not a situation of when it comes time to do goal review or whatever, end of the month or end of the quarter, nobody's walking into that meeting going, ah, yeah, I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't hit the goal because of this reason. Sounds like in the plaid environment, they would say like, well, just fix that problem. And then, <laughs> and then it wouldn't be an issue. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's really great. And yeah, you mentioned doing user surveys. I can imagine why that might be. I, I feel like within an organization, every time you're operating internally, it's a lot easier to get the team rallied around fixing issues that kind of are only on the inside of the house. But I kind of feel like it's one of the things like, as soon as you start messaging customers, then it's like, okay, we need to, let's be a little bit more, let's be a little bit more thoughtful instead of just kind of throwing things against the, the wall. I thought it's a really good example you gave is like, if you're, if one team is going to be getting feedback from users, then you really do have a responsibility to make sure that those features that you're asking about make their way into the product eventually. Otherwise, people are going to feel kind of miffed about that of like, ah, well, glad I took all this time to share my thoughts that none of it, <laughs> none of it actually happened. Definitely. Yeah. A customer surveying process, no matter how good it is on the intake side, is not going to be super effective. It might even actually be detrimental to what you're trying to do if you don't have the buy-in from product and edge to implement those feature requests, like you mentioned. So you, while you're at Plaid, you said you're in the, the go-to-market team and you are working on some of the, the biggest integrations out there that, like you mentioned, I, I think that I've actually used Plaid unknowingly as well. Could you share any, like, what was the process like going through, especially as somebody who's like relatively new to the tech world, what was it like going through these, these large-scale projects and what did you learn through the experience of, of working through them? Yeah, so there are two different roles I held during my time at Plaid. The first was this kind of generalist go-to-market role, like you mentioned. And then the piece where I worked a lot more directly on the product and authentication was when I moved to the product management uh, org. And I worked on this product called Plaid Link that I was talking about earlier, which is just that application that gets embedded within Venmo and Robinhood and Coinbase so that when you choose connect my bank account and you can search for a bank, you connect your bank account, that's all Plaid's UI that's embedded in those client applications. And so I think in terms of kind of, you know, the breadth and depth of what is actually underneath that surface area is that Plaid link product, which gets embedded in those fintech apps, it connects with 10,000 different bank integrations, all that are speaking slightly different languages. And so Plaid has to standardize the way that a developer can interact with Plaid via a unified API. And this is where a lot of the value for Plaid comes from. And then you also have to deal with kind of the other issues I was talking about where, okay, in addition to kind of unifying this API layer between 10,000 banks in the US, Canada, UK, et cetera, how do you also make this a good user experience in order to connect a user's bank account, but also at the same time, prevent bad users from trying to take advantage of a system that aggregates so many different banks. Because you'd imagine it's also, you know, fraudsters could try to target something like this with credential stuffing attacks and other types of attempted fraud. And so I think the interesting thing to me was just, you know, the first day I showed up at Plaid when I had never worked in tech before, was when I worked in consulting, I was working on, yeah, very different types of, you know, companies and products that weren't really maybe tech adjacent, but definitely not tech companies. And so I remember the first dinner I had actually at Plaid that first day I started sitting across the table from my now co-founder, Juliana, and she was explaining how they had built one of the bank integrations. And I remember the amount of complexity 
that was getting shielded from our customers was just astounding to me. And really across the Plaid product, but also you know across any API company that's successful, it's really impressive and also you know continually surprising to me how much you're abstracting away in terms of friction and complexity in order to give something like a simple API endpoint for someone to interact with to access this primitive and provide this functionality to their app. Yeah, it's it's something that we have experience with on the barometric side of dealing with different payment providers, PIs. And yeah, we totally, we experience that same pain all the time of especially trying to for us, it's a little bit different because we're trying to like unify so that everybody who uses Barometrics can see their in a similar way, regardless of the payment provider or how they have their account set up, which there's uh, a lot of different ways that you can go about creating subscriptions. And it's like basically every single day we find that, especially with like a platform that's so robust like Stripe, it's like every day we find there's a new way to modify the price of a subscription or something like that. So we're like constantly in, yeah, it's like that exact same mentality that you mentioned of like, well, we just want people, we don't want people like worrying about it. I guess to some extent we want people to appreciate how much, how much hard work it is and that it's like not super straightforward to turn their account into these numbers, but we don't really want them bogged down in like the actual logistics of like, well, what did it take to pull the data that we had in this other system and like putting it into this new format that looks beautiful and great and, you know, could leave the customer with the assumption that, oh, this probably wasn't that hard to do. Definitely. I think that's pretty, you know, frequent challenge of building something that's so simplified on the outside, but so complex internally. And I think it's something I think about as well as an API company like Stitch. Yeah, I wonder if there's like some some process around like customers who like don't want to pay for it or don't want to pay what what it's worth. It just like having having the approach of like, well, go try it. <laughs> like if if your if your alternative is like we'll just do it ourselves, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? Give it a shot. And just for fun, just for fun, let's book a follow up meeting in like two months from now. And I just want to hear how great it is. And you know, I wonder I wonder if that's the I, I generally don't generally not quite that cheeky when I'm talking to people. But yeah, it's, it kind of feels like that sometimes, right? Of like, well, if you only if you only knew, <laughs> if you only knew what we did for you, it'd be really, you know, you'd really, you'd appreciate me so much more. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like your, your time at Plaid was like really great. Yeah, I thought it was a fantastic experience. Awesome. But you're not there right now. <laughs> so uh, I'm just, you know, curious, like what happened? Was it, was it this realization that, you had this product that you wanted to build or like what, what was the sort of thought process as you were thinking about leaving Plaid and, and, you know, going somewhere else, you know, period. Yeah, it was a tough decision. You know, I'd been there three years, had been planning on staying longer because I, I liked the people. I liked the product. I liked what I was working on. I, you know, I had had a number of different, what I would call, you know, probably viable startup ideas during my time at Plaid viable in that I think you could make a venture-backed business out of them. Maybe not viable for me to go start because I didn't feel like I was necessarily the right founder for it. Or, you know, I didn't think I would actually have my heart in it in a way where I could endure a decade plus journey to go build that product. And so, you know, I think there was something very different about the idea for Stitch, where working on that, you know, password frustration, and then noticing that there's just a really common technological relic that all end users get frustrated by and creates really large security gaps online, but also a ton of friction online. 
which can hurt both users, but also businesses' core metrics, like, you know, acquisition costs for users, lifetime value of users. And I think, you know, as I had that first first person experience with the problem, and then also realized just how broadly expansive it was to, to, to the internet and how much, you know, general improvement you could provide by solving it, that was where it became really hard for me not to take a really hard look at leaving Plaid in order to go start this company. And I think that was really the thing that started, you know, outweighing everything is feeling that this is something that I could dedicate decades to and that would have a really big impact on both users and businesses. And to me, felt like if we didn't do it, I'm not sure if it was going to get done in terms of someone retiring the password, which is something we talk about as one of our goals here at Stitch. And so that was probably the biggest consideration. I'd say there were some other things that maybe made it feel a slightly more opportune time to leave Plaid. For example, this ended up not going through, but they were getting acquired by Visa at the time I had decided to leave. And, you know, I think it would have been great to work with Visa. I don't know if I would have planned on staying there as long as I would have stayed at an independent Plaid. So I think that was definitely, you know, a contributing factor. But I'd say the biggest thing was just getting an idea that I was really passionate about. And then also, you know, sharing that idea with a great co-founder like Juliana made it feel like a pretty easy decision in, in retrospect. Once you resolved internally that it was like time to leave and like you you were really motivated to start this this new business, what was it like immediately after that? What was the first step into getting started? Funny, I'm going to say the first step was actually convincing those around me that it wasn't a terrible decision to walk away from, you know, a certain amount of unvested plat equity in the middle of an acquisition. And then also this was the beginning of the pandemic. So this was May 2020 when I gave notice to Plaid. So I'd say it's funny, the first step was actually probably me trying to pitch my friends and my, you know, then fiance, now wife, on the idea of me leaving uh, a really, you know, comfortable job and being able to make the leap into entrepreneurship. And I think, you know, as we explained the idea to others, it also is interesting to me how visceral of reaction, even people that weren't super deep into tech had when they heard about this concept of being able to get rid of passwords entirely. So it's, it's funny, that was actually probably the first step. And then from a more kind of operational side of how do you actually turn this into a company so that, you know, we're not quitting our, our jobs for nothing. We had spent probably before we before we had given notice, and I, I had been at Plaid, my co-founder who I met at Plaid, she had been at a company as the first product hire called Very Good Security for roughly the year prior. And so before we gave notice to those uh, two companies, we had spent probably four to five months just kind of pushing the idea around and trying to break it in different ways and flex it and figure out if we were wrong about the opportunity here. So that involved a lot of conversations with developers that had built authentication by hand with or used different vendors like Aussier and Okta and trying to figure out if there really was the you know significant gap that we thought we had identified in the market. So as that had been happening before we gave notice, we'd also started kind of writing down our general kind of pitch of what we thought the you know business model was, the product was, and started putting together, you know, I guess a pitch deck. And when we gave notice, we started having a couple uh, conversations with, you know, friends that were associates at VC firms or were angel investors just to get their feedback. And I think one of the thing that's, things that spiraled out of control faster than we probably anticipated is your deck starts getting shared with uh, VCs, you start getting occult inbounds from different venture firms asking for a conversation. And very quickly, we found ourselves in a feed seed fundraise process. And so that was probably the next big step for us was really sharing our, 
our idea for this product, the proof of concept that Juliana had built and where we saw this going with, you know, dozen plus VCs in the Valley before ultimately choosing a benchmark to lead our, our seed fund with index as a participating investor as well. And so I'd say that was probably the next big step. And then a lot of hiring focus after that and building. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you think there was any response or feedback you could have gotten from your initial round of friends and, and family that would have made you reconsider the 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 possibility of starting this business? Yeah, I think that Juliana and I both consider ourselves, and I think that we actually are quite pragmatic. I think we're like really ambitious thinkers, but I think we're pretty pragmatic about finding the faults in ideas and where things break. And so I think if either of us had started to get discouraged by, oh, the market won't actually buy this product, or, you know, X company is actually solving this problem better than we might be able to, I think it would have been a pretty honest conversation between us that, you know, probably doesn't make sense for us to go quit our jobs and found this company. What was interesting, though, is I, I think we were getting more conviction with every single call we did, because the really common theme throughout was, Yes, if this existed, I would buy this and I would use this. And there, you know, that's where a lot of our early customers came from was people that were excited to get their hands on the product. Awesome. And what was it like going through the the fundraising, like the, the seed round process? It sounds like maybe it seems like you, you were intentional, but almost seems like partially and maybe like partially by accident that you kind of went into like a larger a larger fundraise. Like what was what was that process like to to get started? Did you have any do you have anything built at that point in time? Were you kind of just giving the pitch or like, what was, what was that like going through the initial, the initial fundraising process? Yeah. So I would actually probably describe it as we stumbled into the fundraise process. I, I think the two things that we had done prior to it that helped us a lot and set us up for success in it were one that we had pushed the idea in a lot of different ways. And as a result, we had started working on our pitch deck to make sure we were being clear with ourselves about what we were building and how we were pitching it. And then my co-founder had also built out the proof of concept for a couple of the off products that we wanted to offer from a passwordless lens. So we had those two pieces going into kind of the fundraise. But I think the reason I say we stumbled into it is we at first intended to start discussing like that pitch deck, the idea with you know friends that were in the venture ecosystem just to get their honest assessment. And we were getting really good feedback from that. But that was the point where you know, we probably hadn't expected to start, you know, a full fundraise cycle where we were going to pitch partner meetings, et cetera, over a two to three week span. Uh, and that accelerated really quickly as we noticed that, you know, once your deck kind of gets leaked out there, you kind of have to seize the opportunity to connect with these different VCs, communicate your vision outside of the, you know, 10 to 12 slides that they might have seen over their email. And that was really the piece where I, I'd say it, it worked out very well, but we probably didn't plan it as, you know, closely as, as I probably would have in retrospect. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sort of imagining in my mind as you're, as you're going through the process and it gets to the point where it's, it's time to make a deck like that, that consulting experience that you had is just like, all right, finally, like this is, this is where I shine. It's, it's like time to, you know, I have like years of, of experience doing this thing. I, I wonder, you know, do you think that there's any, I'm that's sort of playing as like a comedy in my head, but do you think there's any like truth to that of like, did, did your experience in the consulting world as it's time to like, you know, sell the company through a pitch deck, did that come back to be really helpful and, and give you something you felt like as a relatively polished product? I think so. Actually, the big, in addition to learning a lot of like, you know, the specifics about how to make 
nice slides, et cetera. I think the biggest thing that you learn around slide making is really storytelling in consulting and concision in terms of how you communicate different narratives. And so I think that was something that was really helpful as we were thinking through how to build the deck. And so it, it's funny, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit, but I, I think it's you know accurate to say that that probably was a contributing factor to our success. That's great. We do our best when we can use all of our all of our experience and like not leave anything not leave anything on the ground when it's time especially when starting a business and everything is unknown and everything like everything is on the to-do list and nothing's done yet so and that totally totally checks out to lean into the strength there so with the with the business so you you kind of started you got your your seed round done you said you kind of moved directly into kind of the the hiring mode and, and getting started what was that what was that phase like for you yeah it was really fascinating for me because I think the thing that I maybe knew in the back of my head, but became really clear very quickly was the need to become maybe not, you know, a complete expert at a net new function every couple months as a founder, but you have to become pretty competent at that function. And so as an example, you know, fundraising was really like becoming a good salesperson and communicator and maybe even a marketer because you're, you're storytelling a lot. And then, you know, when you have that first, you know, cash in the bank as an entrepreneur and you're kind of in hiring mode to make sure that you can build the right team to build the product that you set out to build, there's a huge focus on recruiting, of course. And recruiting isn't just outbound, though that is something that's really important is finding the right ways to find really good candidates. It's also about what is the actual interview process, panel, et cetera, that you put in place to make sure you're getting the right signal and that you're getting reliable signal so that you're not introducing bias into the uh, equation. And so I think that was one of the things that where I had been on panels in the past at Plaid for a number of different roles, I'd never had to think about recruiting from kind of a procedural perspective. And so having to learn you know, how to effectively build a recruiting function that was just my co-founder and myself, that was really eye-opening for us. And so I think the interesting thing to me, and this has kind of stayed true over the last 18 plus months of starting Stitch, is that there usually is a new function you need to quickly ramp up on and become competent in every two to three months. And then, of course, you want to find someone that's more competent than yourself and more of an expert and hire them into that role. But often it's impossible for you not to kind of be the intermediary for some amount of time until you find that person that's talented at that particular role. And so that was one of the big findings for me. And I think you know something that we were focused on, especially for the first three to four months of the company was recruiting. And I think the big thing to keep in mind after that is recruiting should never become a back burner project. There are always going to be other things that feel like they're more on fire in terms of shipping this product, signing this customer, but really trying to hold each other accountable to making sure that recruiting is also top is always top of mind in terms of sourcing, interviewing, et cetera, as you can get into situations where if you don't make it a priority for one quarter, you'll feel it for like two to three quarters in terms of the pain uh, and how it slows you down. And so those are probably a couple of the uh, key learnings for me during that initial phase. Right. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Did you feel like it was difficult to, or, or maybe I guess it's always kind of difficult to recruit, but especially considering the the stage of the company and kind of like the the state that the world was in, you know, a couple of months into COVID, was it challenging to convince people to almost putting them in the same spot that you were in of like, hey, leave your comfortable, safe job amidst all this um, uncertainty and, you know, join up with us on the pirate ship and, and see what we can do. 
It was definitely challenging. It's hard for me to know how challenging it is in a different environment. I mean, because obviously we're still recruiting now, but we're also a 30-person company with $126 million in the bank versus $6 million when we were a seed stage company. And so I think it's, it's always challenging. The thing that I found helped actually was I noticed a number of people were starting to get fatigued from their, their remote jobs and were looking for a change because now we are in June, July, August of 2020. And so I think some of the novelty had worn off. Also, people felt they had a better handle on maybe what was happening with COVID. So I do think there was, you know, a portion of individuals that were ready to leave or, you know, open to leaving for the right opportunity. And so that was one thing I noticed. The other thing that I noticed, though, and continue to notice this, is that passwords do evoke, as I mentioned earlier, a really visceral reaction. We noticed that when pitching VCs. We noticed that when pitching uh, candidates. We noticed it when talking to prospects and customers. And so one of the things that resonated with a lot of developers was not just like the human element of, I dislike passwords, it'd be great if we had a better option, but also the way that we were solving it from a developer tooling perspective. Many of the people we had reached out to had built off at some point in the past. And often we would get responses, even sometimes from people that wouldn't end up interviewing with us, but have now since become customers that would say, I really wish that this existed when I built X or Y, or I'm going to use this next quarter when I need to build Z. And so I think that was one of the other things that benefited us was it's just such a tangible, it's both a tangible problem for just any user, but it's a very tangible product for the developers we are trying to recruit as well. Mm. Yeah, that makes that makes a ton of sense. I forget where I saw it. I was reading recently and someone's talking about the the value of having like the shared enemy, the common enemy on the team and, and that the the whole company is aligned against. And it feels like passwords are a very good are a very good enemy to have because I think there are very few supporters of passwords out there and there's a lot of people that that hate passwords. So it's, I think you picked a, an excellent enemy to align the whole team against and uh, even you know I'm sure even from the investor standpoint from recruiting from customers having this one thing that everybody hates that you promise to get rid of it is a very very attractive pitch. Thank you. Appreciate that. Cool. Okay. So we're now a couple of months into the business. I'm I'm thinking of like what is the middle stage between getting the the first round of employee, getting your funding, getting the first round of employees in, and and getting the first round of, or maybe the next part is getting the the first round of product launch. And today, like, what is kind of the middle stage of the of the business so far look like? Yeah, so you know we raised that seed round in June 2020. Spent the next couple of months really hiring out the early team. And then had shipped our MVP by the end of 2020 and had started putting it in customers' hands, getting really good feedback on our first passwordless product, which was email magic links offered via a direct API integration. And we also have a front-end SDK, which handles the UI heavy lifting for developers that want to use that. And so we had spent a lot of that, you know, first half or that second half of 2020, building out the product, getting feedback, doing kind of an alpha of the product. and then that had kind of positioned us where we were seeing really amazing traction and investors were hearing about that. We actually did our Series A only about you know half a year after raising our seed based on kind of the demand in the market and the traction we were seeing. And so I think that was pretty pivotal because while we, we announced it, you know, kind of middle of 2021, we were able to go into the year 2021 with kind of the emphasis on building out the team to being more than just the seven people that we ended 2020 with. 
And so today we're roughly 30 people. And now I look back at kind of the last roughly year that we've been continuing to build as we came out of beta. And we now have eight different authentication products that span biometrics, mobile verification with SMS, email verification, as I mentioned, different OAuth connections like signing with Google, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. And we've seen kind of like this explosion in terms of product set capabilities and also as a result, kind of the GTM metrics that followed that as well. And that also spurred a lot of that on because we're getting those feature requests from different customers. And I think the the other interesting thing here has just been, I think, how quickly things can go when you invest in the right foundation up front. So for example, one of the common phrases, one of our uh, board members, Chetan Pudagunta, would tell us early on in our company lifecycle is go slow to go fast. And you know, I think he's talked about this publicly as well, which is making the right foundational investments early on is going to allow you to iterate and shift so much faster one, two, three, four quarters from now, whatever it is. And it did feel like the first, you know, six months, we were doing a lot of foundational work that, you know, felt like sometimes we were going slow because there weren't a ton of products coming out of the door. But now the kind of velocity with which we ship is, you know, averaging four new products per quarter and really pretty innovative products. Like, you know, WebAuthn is one that we just shipped last week, which is allows you to use the built-in biometrics on your devices for sign up and login, or you can also use YubiKeys, shipped an embedded authentication product a couple, uh, about a month ago, focused on making it so users can actually have invisible authentication handshakes to them. And so I think that's one of the things that's probably been clear to us was just putting the right investment in the foundation upfront has really paid a ton of dividends now that we're in the faster cycle of building and shipping and iterating. And so that's probably what I've noticed most over the last year. That's really cool. And yeah, I've certainly been in situations where I've tried to just go fast and it doesn't work. <laughs> so you're like, you're, you're totally right. In practice, what does going slow look like in that context? A lot of it had to do with how we thought about the platform team early and some of the you know developer ergonomics for internal development of different products and how we deploy things. And so, you know, we often get told that our platform engineer, Danny, set up an amazing remote dev environment, which has made it much faster for people to iterate and build on. But also then I think a lot of the abstractions that we built internally around shipping new API features, shipping new SDK features have also paid dividends. So some of it kind of goes down to the foundation at the actual like platform layer on the platform engineering side of how we build things. And then I think there are also a lot of abstractions the team has thought about throughout different parts of the stack as you get to more product-oriented pieces that we're building. Got it. So it's like um, thinking about all those little, all those little pains that they get bigger over time, like the the test suite that takes too long to run, or like even like what is the what does the deployment look process look like? What is the were, were there any like process things of like because we're on a remote team? What does you know pull request review look like? And, and were all those things sort of in your mind as far as how can we optimize to make sure that we can get things out the door high quality and as quickly as possible? Definitely. And I'd say, you know, you're never perfect on those, but they were all discussion points and things that we installed policies for. So for example, at one point we we thought, you know, and everyone is working on a lot of things, building a lot of things. So this makes sense that PR reviews were sometimes taking too long and therefore that was stalling someone. And so as we got that feedback and kind of saw that in action in 2020, our CTO installed some, you know, clear guidelines around the timeframe for which you need to uh, uh, review a PR by 
and what is the kind of SLA that we impose internally. And that's probably actually something, you know, you know, I've never been an engineer, but I would guess most companies have something around that. But I think doing it really early is something that you might, you know, forget about if you're just trying to in build mode. But I've noticed even small policies like that, to your point, stack up over time as they're all just cutting, you know, wasted hours or toiling away from the development process in a way that hopefully you can move faster. That's great. I think that when I've experienced things like that, it's kind of like really the trade-off that you're making is like, well, do you, would you rather have the thing or would you like, would you rather ship the product or do the thing versus making that long-term investment? Like, like you're, like you're saying, and I think that sometimes it can be difficult. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear if this was the case for you, but especially for like engineers, like they, especially very good engineers, like they want to ship and they want to get their products out there and they're really excited to get it into the world. Was there any like sort of environment that you created or anything that you said directly to help the team appreciate that? Like, yes, I know we could get feature one out the door or product one out the door more quickly, but what we're really concerned is, you know, in three months, in six months, we want uh, to your point, like you, you are launching like four features or four products a quarter. Was there any like specific communication or any sort of system you set up to kind of like get the rest of the team on board with that of like, hey, like I'm, I'm okay with us shipping slower now because we're going to go faster later? There were a few times where we actually brought in the board member I mentioned, Jason Putagunta, for fireside chats with the early team. I think we did this twice. And we actually made that a discussion point at both of them, which is what is this concept of go slow to go fast mean? How have you seen this work out at other companies? Jason focuses on developer companies and his investments. And so he has some great kind of anecdotes and analogies of what's worked well and what hasn't worked well. And so I think that was really helpful kind of way to exemplify what we were talking about. And that was probably the main way that we kind of talked about this. But then I'd say my co-founder is really diligent in kind of technical conversations of asking that question to people of, you know, are we like, sometimes we just need to get the MVP out because that's how you get information about what needs to improve. But to your point also, sometimes you need to make sure that you're taking a little bit of extra time upfront so that this is something that is going to be able to move much faster a quarter or two quarters from now. And so I think our CTO and my co-founder Juliana has also balanced that really well from the conversations I see internally when we're talking about trade-offs with a new feature or product. Yeah. And the thing that I, I've seen a little bit is, or at least I've, the thing that I felt is that it can be like a little bit scary too, from that standpoint to like, kind of like reflect on the emotions of it, because you know, like you can definitely quantify that you're making an investment, but whether or not that investment pays off is like, if you ship something, you definitely got that thing shipped and you can see that and you kind of, you know, it's like, it is done, but you know, the investment is kind of speculative. Did you have that sort of feeling or were you ever like up late at night going like, okay, like we're not shipping anything yet and I really want to get more out the door. But, you know, I know, I know in my head that we're doing these things to move faster, but in my heart, I'm kind of feeling like I'd rather just ship the things Did that ever cross your mind or was it, it was having that board member being so uh, accomplished and having like kind of having the, the pinch hitter from, from that perspective, having them come in and say like, yeah, like here, here's where we need to be. And, and here's what I've seen be successful. Was that kind of enough for you to be like, okay, cool. Like I'm going to, I'm going to stay the course and I, I have confidence that we're on the right track. It would definitely cross my mind and is something that would kind of be in the back of my head occasionally. But to your point, I think we had enough 
other, we would notice when things like, you know, you started seeing the wins accumulate where, you know, some small things, oh, we made, we did this investment two months ago and now this piece is going way faster. And so you couldn't see everything because some of these were multi-quarter bets, but you started seeing that and then having also that backbone, as you mentioned, in terms of really supportive board member that has kind of seen this before allowed me to kind of allay any of those concerns that I might have. And so it definitely does cross your mind because I, I think to your point, you know, you always want to ship something and something faster so you can see that tangible product in the world. So I'd be lying if I said it wasn't something that can cause a little bit of heartburn, but at least, you know, it, you know, it's like medicine, right? You, you know, it's good for you, even if you don't enjoy taking it. Yeah, for sure. And I'm kind of, I'm wired as such a spaz naturally that like, it's like, it's very difficult for me to have the attention span, even though, as you've mentioned, like, I know it's best to make these long-term decisions, but I certainly find myself going like, yeah, but what if we, what if we just got it done? Like, what if we just, you know, what if we just figured it out and and dealt with, you know, you know, kind of slog through it. And so it's very cool to hear your experience of, because it almost feels like, I don't, I don't know if this connects at all, but it, it almost feels a little bit like, I don't know if selfish is the right word, but it's kind of like, there's like a, I've been on a lot of engineering teams in the past where a lot of the work that the team does is sort of like self-indulgent of like, well, we're going to like redesign this system or we're going to have, you know, put these developer tools in place. And, and those didn't contribute to the product moving more quickly. It was just kind of like, because the dev team sort of had a lack of direction and the company wasn't really clear on what needed to happen next, you know, the, the engineers would kind of figure out the thing that they could do that would you know, it kind of feels like work and it, you know, from the outside, it like, it approximates work, but it actually doesn't do anything. So I feel like there's a part of it too, of like, maybe a little, a little bit of a historical memory of me of like, well, I don't want us to go, I don't want us to go too far down that road, but clearly you found like a, a pretty successful pattern here of like, there's a line to be drawn of like how much playing around with the environment we do versus like how much okay, now it's time to, to ship it and, and get that feedback that we need to make good decisions moving forward. And you articulate a really important thing to keep in mind, which is that piece of at what point are you investing in foundations that aren't actually going to have returns? And I think it's something that you need to be really mindful of in those internal discussions about, you know, should we actually invest in this upfront? But also I've noticed it's something that gets talked about a lot in our debriefs for candidates where whenever we're asking them to talk us through a project in their past they've worked on that was complex um, or interesting, and you know we're, we're having them talk us through kind of what they worked on, what their contribution was, how they planned for it, how they solved problems, et cetera, it's always kind of a red flag if somebody chooses that really, maybe it's, maybe it's actually a super impressive technical project, but they're not as concerned about what the actual impact was to the org or company. And so I think that's another way that we discuss it is, is this engineer that we're interviewing consistent with kind of the ideals that we hold? One of the values we talk a lot about at the company is designed for the future, build for the present. And so what we mean by that is there is a balance, like, right, sometimes you do need to ship the MVP, which is building for the present, but you should at least have in mind how, like, you want to make sure it's not hamstringing you in terms of what you want this ultimate product to be. And that's where we see people sometimes make, make mistakes with getting the first feature out is that they neglect the foundation that way. But of course, you can, to your point, overinvest in the foundation in a way that doesn't even allow you to build for the present either. What are your criteria to make that decision on if this piece of you know infrastructure is 
the right thing for us to focus on to move faster later? And if now is the right time to, to put, that, uh, put that, that piece of support in place? The primary things that we talk about are timeframe to benefit. And then is that benefit something that we're going to build anyways? And so I'll give an example of kind of like our OAuth products where we could have, you know, we launched OAuth support in Q3 of this year, 2021, and we could have launched it a couple quarters earlier with just maybe like signing with Google. And we wouldn't have invested nearly as much in the foundation that makes it really extensible and easy for us to add new OAuth connections. And so the things we had talked about in that decision were if we did invest much more in the upfront piece that delayed us getting out the signing with Google option but allowed us to be more scalable long-term, what would be the time frame to reward? And we knew it was less than two quarters, which is often quite a random proxy, but it's a proxy that we think about as a company because we usually plan in halves of years versus whole years. And then we do tiling on a quarterly basis. So time frame to kind of benefit. And then we ask the question of like, what is the magnitude of the benefit? Does it mean adding a new OAuth connection goes from a few, a couple sprints, like a couple weeks to a day or less. Or less. And if, if you're talking that type of kind of like, you know, repeatable notion where you're saving days or weeks for every net new product, when you know that we're going to end up with 30, 40 OAuth connections in the next 12 to 18 months, that became a really easy decision. But I'd say it's not always that easy, but often we look at kind of time frame two results, and then how much we're going to need to be working on top of that foundational layer in a way that we can kind of generally predict how much time it might save the team ultimately. Got it. So it sounds like you are kind of just making, we're substituting time for money, but you're just trying to make a sound investment. Like if we invest an extra three months, if this thing we think is going to take us three months longer over the course of the next, you know, half of year, you know, next full year, do we think we get three plus months back? And in your case, if you're you're saving multiple weeks per OAuth connection, and you're going to have dozens of OAuth connections, you can do the math pretty easily. Be like, yeah, it's totally worth the extra eight weeks or uh, you know twelve weeks that it's going to take. Is, is that kind of like a summary of like how you're in abstract thinking about making these sorts of investments? Yeah, that's a good summation. And it also sounds like you're you're also operating against like timing too. If you're like, well. We really need to, like, there's some other externality that says, like, we really should get this product out by this point in time. Then that's the other side you're going to compare against of, like, how important is it that we nail this release by a specific date? And are we willing to, you know, deal with the, the debt, the tech debt from that on the, on the outside versus does this just inherently spending the time on this thing? Are we going to get, like, a return on time moving down the road? Uh, like, is, is that going to actually pay off for us? Yep, exactly. Cool. That's a great way to think about it. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, uh, n- not, to, not to diminish the wisdom, but it's kind of like obvious, right? If you think about it, it's like, well, if spending time on this thing now is going to save us more time later, and it happens over a time, like a relevant time horizon, then that's certainly something that you should factor in as you're thinking about like, well, what's the, what's the immediate need for this feature? I'm sure I must have done some sort of analysis on that, but I don't know that I've ever done it like so plainly and discreetly like that. But it feels like, Maybe it feels different in practice for you, but it feels like that's like a really like consistent way to to make these sorts of decisions and at least know like all the different variables that you're working with. Totally. And I think you're right that it is obvious. I think sometimes it's hard in a startup to break away from some of the other structural pieces like 
do I have runway for that long so that these long-term investments will matter? And so I, I totally understand why sometimes companies feel like they can't make these decisions early. I think if you have really long-term oriented investors, it definitely becomes much easier or much, much easier to justify. But to your point, I think anyone could think like this. Sometimes startups put exogenous kind of strain on the ability to think like this, but we found it at least helpful for us here at Stitch. And it, it creates a really nice framework too, because if we if the organization knows that this is the decision-making process, nobody's really going to come up and say like, oh, well, I'd like to, I'd like to spend extra time working on this system because it kind of feels like maybe it'll be better. And it's like, well, we, we need to have some sort of sense of quantification, like how long do you think you're going to work on it? And then what sort of savings, like what, what do we think the downstream effect is going to be? And so it can kind of, it feels like it, it could be something that could really help make those conversations productive because if everybody knows that you kind of have to have an idea of how long you think it's going to take and you got to kind of have an idea of like what you think the savings going to be down the road. If you can't answer those questions, I imagine that those are scenarios where the company is much less likely to invest there because the return, the, the upfront investment and the return are so uncertain that it might just be better to ship the product and then you get better feedback so you can make better decisions moving forward. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Cool. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's I think that's extremely useful and like very practical at any sized uh, business. Maybe it's like um, extra extra good if you have a couple of million dollars in the bank account, but I think it's like it's a mentality that every business can can have, and um, I think it is almost kind of like a meme that as products grow and as development teams grow, things get slower. And I think this is like a very good antidote to that of like, well, it gets slower because when you have, you know, four lines of code and you want to add a fifth line of code, it doesn't really matter like how, how difficult the environment is. Like, it's like very straightforward to do that. But when you have 40 million lines of code and you want to add the, you know, another, another 10 million, then it's a much larger task. I feel like this is like super, super applicable to any size team to try to try to solve for that and make sure that there's like that long-term longevity and that the the development team stays happy and productive. Because <laughs> like to your point, engineers are in high demand and it's sometimes difficult to get to. So uh, having having a super happy, super productive team, which is what brought you to Plaid, is something you can create on your your engineering team where people are like, yeah, it's great. You can like ship stuff really fast and you can like it's actually almost the same pitch. I don't know if you meant to do that, but like, yeah, if there's like a problem shipping software, you can own it and we can fix it and we can make it better. And the company is like, has a long-term vision that we want this to constantly get better. So I feel like that's a, that's a huge, that's a huge benefit for your organization. Totally. Yeah. And it's been amazing to see kind of the continuous kind of surprise from people when they join a startup like us. And, you know, as they discuss the remote dev environment or notice some of those other foundational pieces we invested in, and so to your point, also from an like engineering, ergonomics, happiness, et cetera, perspective, I think it is one of those enduring pieces that can also help with things like retention indirectly as well. Yeah, it's something we see kind of with like the other hat on the, on the private equity side. If, we, if we're acquiring a product, like one of the things we look at is like, well, how long does it take somebody on our team to get the product up and running? Like how, how long would it take them to deploy to production? And we acquired a product recently where the we were able to deploy to production like it, within the first hour of having access to the repository. And that was just like, 
such like, yeah, it was like an eye opener of like, oh my goodness, like this is, this is very good. <laughs> this is like a very, very well built, very, very thoughtful, you know, methodical system. So yeah, you're totally right. It's something I, I maybe didn't have in context previously, but I'm certainly thinking about it now. Wait, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. It's kind of curious, like, well, what's kind of the, what's kind of the, the latest going on with Ditch and, and like what's going on within the, the company? What's on the horizon if you have anything that you might want to hint to or just sort of like what, what's sort of your, your current focus with the, with the business? Yeah, so it's been a whirlwind of 2021. Actually, we, we announced our Series B two weeks ago. We raised a, a $90 million round led by KOTU. And so, you know, a couple of the primary focuses really for 2022 and what's coming is, you know, we're still a 30 person team. We're still quite small. We're shipping really fast, but we see the product areas where we can invest way more in if we were better resourced. And so we will, you know, we're targeting to getting to over a hundred people by end of next year, based on kind of the product org design that we have right now for the things that we want to ship next year. And a lot of the continuous products that you'll see us continue to bring to market. Our, I mentioned a little bit earlier that we just released our first biometrics product, WebAuthn, a couple of weeks ago as well, same day that we announced our Series B. And that's great. And we're going to continue to kind of double down on these types of pretty innovative products that are both super high security when it comes to you know ability to protect against account takeovers, but also extremely low friction to users. And so you'll see a, a lot more investment there in 2022, as well as we're getting a lot of more kind of verticalized or category requests on how certain verticals would love to see off slightly better catered to their needs. So for example, we actually get a ton of requests from Web3 companies for some of the ways they want to bridge the gap from Web2 to Web3 user onboarding and login more efficiently. And so, you know, that's probably something that you'll see a lot more from us in 2022. But to date, some of the verticals where we've been able to offer new products and really cater to what they're trying to do our e-commerce and fintech, for example. I mentioned that we had released a product uh, a couple months ago called Embedded Authentication, which is effectively invisible authentication to the end user. It's built on the idea of embedding high entropy tokens, so magic links, in existing customer communication channels. So you can wrap that magic link token into a call to action button that you put in a promotional marketing email for like $10 off. Or you can send it in an SMS text that says like, view your account statement. Um, or you can send it over WhatsApp, whatever it is. And so I just mentioned that as those were the types of requests that were, you know, they're applicable to every company, but we are hearing them in a very pointed way from companies that care a ton about conversion and user engagement, like fintech and e-commerce. And so similar to that and what we're hearing in Web3 and other verticals, you'll continue to see us kind of augment our both existing solution set, then also how it's integrated in ways that can serve those different verticals needs effectively. Awesome. Reed, well, I really appreciate making the time. This has been, I've personally taken a couple of, of notes here that I'm going to implement. And uh, I think it's going to be the same for everybody listening to this. Thanks again so much for, for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brian. That was our conversation with Reed McGinley-Stemple, co-founder and CEO of Stitch. If you need a better way to authenticate your users, you know where to go, stitch.com. That's S-T-Y- tch.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.